take your Bibles, let's go to the book of Matthew, chapter number 16. Matthew, chapter number 16. And the text of Scripture we'll be reading is one that will be, the account will be rather familiar to us. Just a few months ago, uh, we covered this same account in the book of Mark. Matthew's gospel will give us a little more expanded view and I think give us a good foundation of where we're going. Um, what we'd like to do is take the next six weeks and unpack a series that we're entitling uh, The Church Upon This Rock. And uh, Pastor Caleb and I are both going to partner in this series for the next six weeks and be walking through why the church, what is the church, and the purpose of the church. Um, I, I think there's a couple of reasons why uh, we want to do that. The timeline of where we're at in our church calendar would encourage us to do this. Um, as we end the year, we'll be adding deacons to our, our deacon board and considering the direction um, of our church. And as we do that, I think it's important for us as a church family uh, to be intentional about thinking into what it means to be a church and what it means to walk out uh, the life of a church together. And so we'll be talking about that in regard to that. I think it's important for you as uh, people and pastor that I, you hear from your pastor what the Bible teaches about the church and what the Bible teaches about the role of a pastor and the role of deacons inside the life of a church. And uh, I don't ever want to um, have a heart that says, well, this is what the pastor believes. What we won't always have this heart is saying, this is what the Scripture says. Now, let me make something very clear. I know there are a wide spectrum of polities or church governments that many would hold. And those people are not people that disagree with what I would teach uh, on maybe organization. They're not our enemies. We're not opposed to those people that would see things differently. They're going to hold a little different, uh, maybe not pastor and deacon, but they'll say terms like elders and bishops and things of this nature. Terminology is not the issue. The issues are the fundamentals of Scripture, and that's what we want to point ourselves to. Um, and so we would leave room for that. But let me say this too. Even though I leave room for other people to stand in different places, I think we have to stand somewhere. And we have to draw a line where we stand. And so I want to do my best to lay out for you where I believe the Scripture would have us stand. And if I could also say that where our church has stood. And so uh, I think it's also important that we remind ourselves of these truths of Scripture. That we take the time to sit back and you're going to say, well, Pastor, I knew that already. And that's all good and fine, but we need to be reminded of it. I think we also need to clarify where we stand from time to time and then hopefully instruct those who do not know where we stand so they can understand where we're coming from in that biblical role. And so this is my heart in doing this. And so if you found your place in Matthew 16, we're going to begin reading in verse number 13 and we'll read down through verse number 20. And let's stand together in honor, honor of the word of God this morning. Matthew 16, 13 through 20. And when Jesus came to the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? They said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, and some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, but my Father, which is in heaven. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, 
And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And he charged his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Would you pray together with me this morning? Father, we ask you to add your blessing to your word as we know that you do. And Lord, help us to be reminded that, Father, if we are not filled with your spirit, then the work that we would do this morning would not be accomplished to its full end. Or not only as the speaker this morning do I need to be filled with your spirit and guided by your spirit, but Father, as the hearers of the word today, may each of us seek to be yielded to you as we hear the word of God and apply it to our hearts this morning. Or do a work in our midst, and we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' precious name we ask it. Amen. You can be seated there. The text of Scripture that we find ourselves in here, um, we have covered, as I said, in Mark's account, in Mark 8, 27 through 30, several months back. And this same account gives us more details of what was, than what was included in Mark. But what both of these texts have in full view here is the deity of Christ. And that is the central view of what's going on here, that Jesus Christ is both God and man. And I, I think sometimes if we're not careful, we are around that so much that uh, that just kind of passes by us. But someone who doesn't know that doctrine, it may be something hard to grasp in your mind. How is it that he is God and man? And let me say this, we cannot explain this, we simply believe this because scripture says it. That God of eternity past stepped into eternity in the form of man and he was truly God, truly man, who was sacrificed for our sins, was buried and rose again three days later claiming the victory over death, hell, and the grave. And he gives us that victory today. Now that doctrine has to be held in the centrality of what these texts are teaching us. But there's more that's being said here as well. So as we look at this being in full view, Matthew's account expands the conversation to include the first mention in our English translation of the word church. Now it's not the first use of this word, but it's the first time it's translated church. And I think it's very important, I think it was A.W. Tozer who said, uh, probably the most important thing in the life of a Christian is what comes to mind when you think of God. And I think that's a very good summary of what's the most important thing. But I would say also in the life of a believer, what comes to our mind when we think of church is likewise very, very important. How we view church. Is church um, a religious obligation? Is church a location? And I think probably that's the most common mistake that we make in our tradition is that church becomes a location. And it's just a building we're coming to, and we gather at the church on Sunday to have church, and I'll even use the terminology when I'm talking to my wife, I'll say, hey Sue, I gotta stop by the church on the way home. And what I mean by that is I'm gonna come by this address on Hayes Road and pick some things up from the office. Uh, but really, that terminology is a diluted terminology, and in reality, what we have is a corruption of terms that happens over time. How many of you know what chapstick is? All right, how many of you know that chapstick is not all chapstick? You know what I'm saying? All right, because I mean, if you have chapstick in your pocket, you may have Blistex, or you may have Carmex, or you may have any number of other kinds of lip balm that we use for these things, but it's come to be known as chapstick. The brand has become synonymous with the item. And I think a lot of times terms get uh, distorted like that. So when I was a boy growing up in, in Atlanta, um, if you went to a restaurant and you said, hey, I, I'd like to have a Coke, 
then they would look at you and ask you, what kind? Well, I'll have a root beer, or I'll have an orange. And because everything that was carbonated was Coke. And, and if, you know, and I know many of you, you, you call it soda and pop and all that, and you're all wrong. It's Coke. Um, but it, it, there's, there's no middle ground on this, all right? Some things I will compromise on, but not that, all right? And I'm praying for you guys that drink Pepsi. Um, that's almost blasphemous, brother. It's almost blasphemous. The um, brother Rick and I have a good time cutting up about that. I came into my office a few, uh, few it was a couple of years back now, I guess, and uh, he had hidden a Pepsi cup on my shelf and was waiting for me to notice it. It was just sitting there on display. And, uh, but you know, we, we have these terms; they get loaded with another meaning, and it almost distorts what we're trying to communicate. And the church is that way. I think a lot of times church gets loaded with the meaning of location. I think also church can become an organization. And the term we'll hear a lot is, I don't know why they do that. And what we're referring to when we say they, we kind of have like the pastor in mind and maybe Miss Melissa who runs the office for us in mind, Pastor Caleb and loosely the deacons and maybe the worship team. Why do they do things like that? And you're referring to an organization that this is the church over here and it's this group of people who make policy decisions and practical decisions and it's a they. And let me say this, it's not a they, it's a we. We are the church. It's the gathering of called out, saved believers who are for the Lord Jesus Christ and pushing forward for him. And then another, another way we get it as confused is a hierarchy of religious authority. And maybe that's the tradition you grew up in, is that the church was something extremely big and it was something that you could not see or really was bigger than anything tangible. And there were people on many levels of hierarchy. And I can commend the view of seeing it as something big because it is much bigger than a congregation. It's much bigger than any one congregation. But what we would teach here is that we believe in what is called the autonomy of the local church. That means we believe this church should be governed by the people of this church. And we make the decisions within this church of where we're going to go, understanding while we do so that we are bound to Scripture as we make those decisions and that we are a part of an innumerable army of people who are also a part of this called-out assembly that are marching through time and eternity to accomplish his ends. And so we see that mistaken understanding of what the church is. So when we think of the church, I think these terms need to be clarified. We cannot define the church this morning by anything other than Scripture. We do not have the freedom this morning to let tradition determine for us what the church is. We cannot even let our own personal history be the thing that determines what the church is. And many here in this room, and one of the things I do love about Shelby is how many different backgrounds people have come from to be here this morning. Many of you have come from different backgrounds, you've grown up in different traditions, and we're coming here this morning and we're lifting up the name of Jesus together for the glory of God, around the word of God, and we're doing that for God's glory. And so as we come together, it is not our tradition, it is not our personal history, it's not our culture that defines the church. And we must rest our faith in scripture alone and to the one it points us to. This is where our hope rests. Now, let me ask you this question this morning. What would the apostles have thought of when Jesus said to them, upon this rock, I will build my church? What would have come to their mind when they heard the word church? What well, was a commonly, it was a called out gathering for a purpose. 
Commonly, the word church was any assembly that was called out. As a matter of fact, when we hear in the Old Testament that the assembly of the people or the nation of Israel, the assembly, they would use that term. Literally, the Hebrew word that is translated assembly there, when translated into Greek, we get the word ekklesia, which is where we get the word church. This called out assembly, a gathering of people. You picture the nation of Israel leaving Egypt, being called out, and then assembling. And that word is to church together. And so we We are a called out assembly. And so when they heard this term, they would have thought of a group of people called out. And so any number of gatherings, this word would have been used for. There would have been a called out assembly for political purposes and a called out assembly for uh, uh, maybe religious discussions or for educational purposes. But here, Jesus is saying it's a called out assembly and he defines it when he says, my called out assembly. Because they were called out of something to something. And we are called out of this world to the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Jewish men would have been familiar with the terms, but now it's beginning to fill out what he means by this church. And so as I wrestled through this text this week, I, I really want to be able to say to you what is not, what is, and why it matters. I think that's the three things I want to get accomplished today. And I'm going to do it by organizing our thoughts in these five points. First off, I want us to see the confession of the church. And we'll unpack that. I want you to see the foundation of the church. I want you to see the progress of the church, the owner of the church, and the power of the church. And so let's look at the confession of the church first. Verse number 13 and 16, Jesus comes to the apostles and he says, Who do men say that I am? Who do men say that I am? I wonder if we were to go on the streets of our community today and ask that very question, who is Jesus? What would be the answer? Well, I think largely we would hear the same answers today that we did then. And I think the answers can be summed up by two things, confession and denial. There was, I'm sorry, confusion and denial. There was confusion of who Jesus was. Some said, well, he's one of the prophets. Others said, well, no, he, he's Elijah, or he's John the Baptist come back from the dead, and Herod himself was afraid that this was John the Baptist being resurrected because Herod had him executed. And he said, this is, this is scary because this is who this is. And they were confused about who he was. Then others denied who he was. If you remember his family when he was starting his earthly ministry, they tried to do an intervention and rally around Jesus and say, he's lost his mind. He's crazy. Let's grab him and carry him back home before this thing gets out of hand. And others said, no, no, he's not crazy. He's possessed of a demon. That's his problem. And they were both denying the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so there was confusion and denial. And I believe that confusion continues to this day. And that's why it is so important, church, that this second part of the question that Jesus asked be clearly understood by the New Testament church this morning. And here's the question that I would put to you. Who do you say that Jesus is? And more importantly than what the world would say about it, what does the church say about Jesus Christ? Where do we stand on that? Whom do you say that I am? And of course, Peter rushes forward and says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Can we boldly proclaim this in this world today? Now, let me make something very clear. Uh, You will not make an exclusive claim for Jesus Christ very long without making people very upset. Because we're okay with Jesus being part of the answer, but we have a very hard time in our society of Jesus being the answer. And this is what we are called to do, is proclaim Jesus Christ as the Christ, the Son of the living God. Can we boldly proclaim that? 
Now, let me make something very clear. This is not a natural understanding of this. Look what Jesus says to Peter. And he says, uh, Simon Peter answered in verse 16, he said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said, Blessed art thou. And by the way, if you know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, you are blessed this morning. You are blessed beyond measure. Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Here's the thing. This is only supernaturally discerned. This is not something you're going to get to by your own intellect. It is not something you're going to get to by your own study apart from the Father in heaven revealing it to you through his Son, Jesus Christ, uh, through his Spirit, rather, that Jesus is the Son of God, not flesh and blood. If we know today that we are blessed by this truth, we do not have grounds to boast, but reason to praise him for his grace. The church must be able and willing to confess Christ as he is to men as they are. We must be willing and able to confess him. We cannot sit back and unwilling to say who he is and unable to do so. Are you confessing Christ actively today as you go through your daily life? Are we proclaiming him? Because let me say this morning, if the church is here to do anything, it's to promote Jesus Christ. It's to lift his name up everywhere we go. And here's the reality. You may not have 45 minutes to unpack the whole of the gospel, but you can give Jesus praise and you can let people know that you put your faith in him. And I challenge us this morning to take every opportunity to do that. Does this confession show itself in our daily lives? So what am I asking? Are you able, church, this morning, you that's sitting there right now, able to take the word of God and open it up and make an argument for who Jesus is? Can you do that on your own? And now, now this morning, if you say, Pastor, I, I'm a little put off. I, I don't think I could do that. Let me just challenge you to get there. Let me challenge every one of our young people, every one of our adults in this room to be able to take the word of God and argue for who Jesus is. That we can look at the word of God and know it's not just because my mama told me and my daddy told me, but I've looked in the word of God and I've come to the conclusion that I know who Jesus is according to scripture. When I was in uh, college, early on in college, I was just working in a Bible club, and I'd heard a kid wanted to come to Bible club, and so I had to, to go over to the house and invite him and get his parents' permission for him to come, and we work with teenagers primarily, and so uh, I'd gone over to the house and knocked on the door, and the mama answered the door, and uh, I think actually it was an aunt, but for the story, it doesn't matter really, but um, she answered the door, and she was a Jehovah Witness. Um, if you know anything about Jehovah's Witnesses, they do not believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. They believe he became a God, but he, not, he was not always God. And it's a false teaching about the person and work of Christ. But I sat there with that lady, and she said, well, Jesus wasn't always God. And I went, yeah, he was. And she said, no, he wasn't. And I'm like, yeah, he was. <laughs> and she's like, show me. And I was like, hmm, um... Um, it's in there somewhere. <laughs> I know it is. It's about 18, 19 years old, and I found myself flat-footed with no answer. And, I, and that lady commenced for the next 30 minutes to hand me my lunch. I mean, she gave me up one side and down the other and let me know where I was wrong, and she was using Scripture to combat me. And I found myself very much befuddled. And I went home that afternoon, and I got my Strong's Concordance. How many of you ever had a Strong's Concordance? You know what I'm talking about? I had a big Strong's Concordance. It's green. It weighs about 780 pounds. 
And I laid that out on my bed, and I got some paper and my Bible out, and I began to go through and look up the names of Jesus and what Scripture said about who he was. And I would read something, and I'm like, oh, man, that's good, and I'd write it down. And I'd write something, and I'd finished a whole page of Scripture verses where I'd written it down and made notes beside it, and I folded that up. And I'm like, I can't wait to meet that lady next week. I'm ready to go now. Because I've got was loaded. I carried that with me in my in my uh, my tools as I went to Bible club for a lot of years, and began to just root myself in the fact that the Bible teaches who Jesus is, and because we're founded upon the Word of God, we're able to argue that point. And when I say argue, I don't mean being rude. I mean make an argument for who Jesus is from Scripture, and do so boldly. Church, can we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord? Can we make that argument to this lost world? I want you to see, secondly, the foundation of the church. This is probably one of the most uh, controversial passages of Scripture in all of Scripture. Jesus makes this statement, on this rock, I will build my church. Now let me make something very clear this morning, that kingdoms will come and kingdoms will go, but the church rests on the rock. That's where the church rests Now, as this scripture is debated, some would point Peter out as being the rock upon which the church was founded. And they would say it is Peter that the church was founded on. That somehow another Peter is given this place of preeminence among the apostles, and he was risen up to be praised above, and now the head of all the apostles. And that somehow another Peter then is the founding father of the church. That somehow another, he was exclusively given the keys. Let me make something very clear. As we read this text, the rock is the person and work of Christ, not Peter. Peter was never intended to be the rock here. As a matter of fact, when Jesus looks at Peter, he says, Peter, thou art Petra, little rock, and upon this rock, this rock, pointing to himself, I will build my church. Jesus was referring to his work, what Peter had just confessed, that thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. You see, the authority would be given to the apostles to shape the church, and Jesus does so here. What you bind in heaven will be bound on earth, or bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And he's saying that what you allow and don't allow is how the church is going to be shaped. And we find that with the apostles, even in the book of Acts, as they begin to decide and make decisions for the church, led by the Holy Spirit, informed by the scripture, the apostles were given the instructions to lay out foundations for the church. But make no mistake this morning, it was not Peter that the church rested upon, but it was the Lord Jesus Christ that the church rested upon. Now they were given the authority to structure the church, but they did so, as I said, through the Holy Spirit that came upon them. Peter was not the first pope. He was not ever a pope. He was executed at Rome, but we have no evidence that he served there as a bishop over all the churches. Everyone who would look to him as the head of the church, this did not happen in this account, nor was he the rock that the church rests upon. There is no provision anywhere in Scripture for a secession of Peter's authority, that it would be passed down to another generation and another generation and another generation. There's no place in Scripture that lays that out. Jesus is the central figure of this text. Jesus is the rock upon which the church is built. Now, why would we say not Peter? Let me give you just three things, and we could give you many Let me give you these three things to chew on. First off, Scripture and its whole does not support this. When we look at throughout Scripture, we do not find Peter staying preeminent through even the book of Acts. 
As a matter of fact, the attention, if we're talking of apostles only, quickly moves away from Peter into the apostle Paul. And Paul has the preeminent role of establishing churches around the world. Scripture doesn't support it in the whole. I think even more importantly than that, and this one is so important, Peter confesses the opposite himself. As Peter stands in Acts chapter number four, and in 1 Peter two, when he writes his epistle, on both occasions, he points us to the fact that Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. That he is the rock upon which the church is founded. History does not bear it out. As we look through history, we do not see it happening. Now, let me make this observation, if I could, from our very text this morning. In verse number 17, Jesus says, Blessed art thou, Simon of Arjona, flesh and blood have not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. I say unto thee, thou art Peter, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, if Peter is promoted in this text, then jump with me to verse number 23. But he turned and said to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou art an offense unto me. He quickly got demoted. And very quickly we find Peter going from the one who is praised to the one who is rebuked. And so no place in scripture do we have this. So what do we conclude this morning? The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ. Our hymnal would confess this as we sing the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ our Lord. We stand upon him and him alone. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 11, I want you to turn there with me if you would. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse number 11, this text of scripture is so clear and needs to be marked in our Bibles. If you're in chapter 3 verse 11, I'm going to be reading here. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He is the one foundation. If we were to go to Colossians chapter number one, and I'm gonna turn there very quickly, and I'll start reading as soon as I get there, but Colossians one, and I can't just read verse 18, I gotta back up a little bit here. Verse number 13, uh, let's go um, verse number 14. In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of the sins, who is the image of the invisible God, talking of Jesus, the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. He, Jesus, is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have preeminence. It is Christ that is the head of the church, the foundation of the church, and when we come to church, Christ should have the preeminence in everything we do in the church. No man should have the preeminence. Christ should have the preeminence. Use the illustration years ago to describe what it means to have preeminence. It's not to say that we don't have other things that we talk about. We talk about other doctrines, but Christ is connected to everything we talk about. See, when... When I was a boy and I made a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, I did it different than my dad did it. My dad made a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and he loaded it with peanut butter. Just thick. And just a little bit of jelly. When I make a peanut butter jelly sandwich, the jelly has the preeminence. <laughs> a little bit of peanut butter and a whole bunch of jelly. When you bite into that sandwich, you've got jelly here and here, you know. It's just everywhere. It has the preeminence. And by the way, when they come into church, they shouldn't be around the church for any time at all before Jesus is everywhere. 
that Jesus is preeminent in everything we do. He comes out in our music. It comes out in our greetings. It comes out in our hallway conversations. It comes out in our prayer time. It comes out in our preaching that everything we do, from the Sunday school class to the nursery to the greeting in the hallway, that Jesus is preeminent in everything because he is the foundation and he alone is the head of the church. And so on this foundation, we are built. So then we would say next, the progress of the church. The progress of the church. Simply, Jesus said back in Matthew 16, I will build my church. We cannot build the church. It's never been our job to build the church. We will never be able to build the church. Now, we may be able to gather a crowd together for events. We may be able to stir up some excitement through promotion and marketing, but that's not building the church. He has to build the church. He does so through his word being proclaimed. And I remember the day when it dawned on me as a pastor that it's not my job to fix you. Because I was so frustrated trying to fix people that I wasn't enjoying doing what I was doing. And by the way, some of you are really stubborn if you didn't know that already. So it's hard to fix stubborn people. The, the reality is it's never been the job, job of the pastor to fix the people. It's the job of the pastor to feed the people and let God do the work within the heart of the people to accomplish his ends. And I remember, I, I can almost take you to the place where I, I'm, I was preaching and I, I can remember, remember coming off the stage and I stood down here. Our stage was a lot lower to the ground there. And I remember standing there and I was so wanting to get it across and it was like the Holy Spirit kind of tapped me on the shoulder and he goes, if I live inside of them, and I'm not moving them as fast as you want them to move, maybe you would stop trying to change what I'm not changing. And I was like, good gracious, that's convicting. Because here's the thing, God lives inside of you, and he's drawing you to him, and he's working in you to conform you to the image of his son, and it's not our job to change people, it's our job to proclaim Jesus, to sow the seed and let God do the work. I think too often we think somehow or another we can produce the outcome we want and accomplish our end. He does this through his word being proclaimed. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Ephesians 4 says, speaking the truth in love, that you may grow up into him. Acts 2.41, they that received the word were baptized and were added to the, and the Lord added to the church daily, such as should be saved. It was through the word of God that people are added. It is as sincere, ba as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. It is the word of God that grows the people of God. And by the way, church, that's why it is so important that we make the word of God primary in everything we do. And that the word of God is preached, not man's opinion, not political uh, ramblings, but we preach the word of God to men as they are, that they can hear God's word preached because that is the only thing that will grow the church. It's the only thing that is going to grow you. It's the only thing that grows me. See, we are not able to produce outcomes, only Christ can. There's mistakes on both sides of this. I think there's one mistake that goes over to this side of the argument and says, well, this is the way I've always done it. This is tradition, and uh, I'm not going to change anything for anybody, and we're going to do it my way or the highway. Because that was the song I sang when I was a kid, and that's the pew that my great-grandmother bought, and we're not moving that. 
And we get locked into tradition. We're not willing to think outside of what we've always grown up in. And now we're defining the church by our tradition. Another uh, mistake, I think, on the other side of this is we go all the way over here and we're trying to make the church palatable to a lost world. Here's the thing. A lost world cannot receive the things of God, but for they are spiritually discerned. They can't understand it. Now, let me make something extremely clear. I want for people to come into our church and feel extremely welcome when they come in here. But here's the reality. If a lost man can come in here and sit week after week after week and be comfortable, we ain't doing something right. Is the gospel being preached or not? Because the gospel should bring conviction to our hearts. It ought to stir something in it. So we're not trying to make the church palatable to this world. Now, we don't want to get locked into tradition where we never have any change and we're not going to change the color of the carpet. We're not going to change anything. And, you know, I can't believe that's happening. And pastor got a new pulpit. And we have these kind of crazy things where we get upset about those. That's nonsense. But we're not trying to make the church acceptable to the world. The church is for believers who know the Lord Jesus Christ to be edified and strengthened that we could send you into a lost world where they are and preach Jesus to them. That's the goal of the church. So we can make the mistake on both sides of this. I want you to see not only this, but the owner of the church. Just very clearly, Jesus says, my church. We are not the owners. We are stewards of the church. The church belongs to him. He purchased this church with his own blood. See, we are not possessors of the church. We are stewards of the church. This is his bride and his bride alone. Now, I want you to listen closely to what I'm about to say here because I think this is very, very important. Too many spiritual leaders in our day and age and throughout history, mind you, have attempted to seduce the bride of Christ to themselves. They are trying to make the church about them. And it is a tempting thing for men, as weak as we are, to make men preeminent. And let me challenge you this morning, the church can never be about us. It always must be about Jesus Christ. It is not what they think of us, it is what we tell them of Jesus. And too often, we find leaders making it about them. I remember the book we read prior to coming here is entitled Next, and Pastor Casey had recommended the book to me. In the opening line of the book, it made this statement, every pastor is an interim pastor. I love that line. Every pastor is an interim pastor. That means there's going to come a day, if God tarries his coming, that I'll no longer stand here, that somebody else will stand and preach the gospel from this place to this congregation. And by the way, every member is an interim member. Your days are numbered here. We don't know what they are, and I hope that God gives us decades to serve him together. I hope that we can grow old together as we serve him here in this location. And if that be God's will for us to do so, understanding there's still going to come a day where we have to hand off what God's given us, and that is a stewardship of the church here to another generation. And man, that's why I rejoice in seeing our children be baptized. Because we're handing down the faith to another generation. That's why I rejoice when I see young men and young ladies say, hey, count me in. I want to go into gospel ministry. I'll go do that with my life. And standing up and saying, hey, where do I sign up at? Because I want to carry it off to another generation. And this is the role that the church has. We are stewards, not owners. And then finally, I want you to see the power of the church. Jesus says to them, thou art Peter, and upon this rock... 
I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What a mouthful. What a mouthful that is. The gates of hell. You know, we don't even talk in that terminology, you know. Jesus looks at them and he says, hell, hell in the terminology, or the translation of the word hell here is the word Hades. It comes from Hades, the place of the dead. This is a picture of death. It is a picture, yes, of judgment. It is a picture of the fact that nobody comes back from the dead. The dead, ha- death has power. And Jesus says to them, the gates, and the word gates would have been a picture of political authority or ruling authority. If you remember the story of Boaz and how when Boaz wanted to plead for Ruth's hand, he had to go to the gates of the city and he sat with the men in the gates and there he had permission to take Ruth as his wife after the legal proceedings were taking place. And this is a picture of the authorities that rule there. And so the place of the dead, the ruling authorities over the place of the dead, I believe he is saying that the church would march on because all of the demonic realm of Satan could not keep Jesus Christ from breaking through the gates of death. That he would march forward through his resurrection power and you and I will not be bound by the authority of Satan and death because of the victory of Jesus Christ. And so the church can march forward. Jesus Christ would resurrect from the grave and he gave power to his church to take territory from the enemy. This morning we are not a foe or a, 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 a fighters on the run this morning. We are not fighting a defensive battle. Oh my goodness, what does the society think about us? Oh my goodness, what what, what the news media think about us? It doesn't matter, folks. You understand today that we have resurrection power to do the work that God has called us to do. I want you to see it in Ephesians, and we'll conclude here. It's your favorite line. We'll conclude. Uh, Ephesians chapter number one, real quick. Turn there with me. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Ephesians chapter number one, verse number 18. Paul is praying. He's praying a spiritual prayer for them to understand. Look at verse number 18. He said, that the eyes of their understanding being enlightened, they may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Look at verse number 19. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power. He said, I want them to understand. I want them to get it. And when I read Paul, I think Paul sometimes is like wanting to kind of turn the top of her head off and pour it in so we get it. And he's like, I I just really want you to understand what I'm saying. He said, I want you to see how big this power is that God is working in you to accomplish his end. And when Paul goes in to make this argument, he doesn't look back at the parting of the Red Sea and say, it's the powerful God who parted the Red Sea. He doesn't look at at the raising of the dead even uh, on Jesus' ministry or the opening of blind eyes or the stopping of the sun in the sky. That's not what he looks at, but he looks at this one event. He said, the same power, the exceeding power which worketh in us mightily, verse number 20, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places. He's talking about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is where we draw our power. We need not live in fear of political systems of this world. We must not fear man's approval. We must march forward with the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost world who is desperately in need of that message. 
And we must confess with Peter, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, and on this rock we stand. Because there is no other place for us to stand. Let's bow our heads this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that there be one under the sound of my voice today that does not know you as their Savior. Father, if they could not say with us this morning that on the Christ, the solid rock, I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. That, Father, before they leave here today, they would settle in their heart that they know they're trusting you and you alone. Holy Spirit of God, give us what we stand in need of. What is a church as we mark forward, may we do so boldly, not because of who we are, but because of who we stand on. In the precious name of Jesus, we ask all these things. Stand to your feet with me as we sing.